Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather. Predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. Josh Powell thought he had found the perfect submissive wife to build a family with one where he would get everything he wanted while she worked for all of it. When she started thinking about a divorce, he knew he had to make her disappear. This is Monsters. Josh Powell was born on January 20, 1976, in Puyallup, Washington, to Stephen and Terrica Powell. He had four siblings, Jennifer, John, Michael, and Alina. Steve and Terry's relationship was always turbulent due to Stephen's disliking for the Mormon religion. Steve had grown up in a Mormon household, but left the church in the mid-80s. He then became strongly anti-Mormon after that, which put a strain on his marriage and later his relationship with Josh and Susan. When she filed for divorce in 1992, Terry said that she worried about Steve's use of pornography and vulgar language in front of the children. Steve said that Terry's use of natural healing mixed with New Age mysticism and Mormon beliefs amounted to practicing witchcraft and devil worship. By the time the divorce was finalized in 1994, Terry said that Josh had killed his sister's gerbils and threatened her with a knife. When she had asked him to do the dishes, he turned and pointed a butcher knife at her, saying, quote, Don't push it, Mom. End quote. When Josh was around 14 years old, he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself, but was obviously unsuccessful. In 1998, Josh was living in Spokane, Washington, attending college at Eastern Washington University, where he met a woman named Catherine Terry. Catherine had recently moved to Spokane from Utah and met Josh at a local church event. After only dating for a few months, Josh convinced Catherine to move with him back to his hometown of Puyallup and live with his father. What this did was isolate Catherine from her family. Josh and Catherine eventually moved to an apartment in Seattle where Josh attended the University of Washington. Josh began restricting when Catherine could go out and where she could go. Josh controlled all of their money, even a student loan that Catherine had gotten in her name. 
he made her wear a ring and pretended that she was his wife at church events. He limited her communication with her family, and when she wanted to visit them, he had to come along. In March of 1999, Catherine took a trip to Utah to visit friends, and it turned out that Josh couldn't join her due to his school schedule. This gave her a much-needed break from Josh to get out from under his control. She ended up breaking up with him over the phone, and he played it cool, but he was angry over the breakup in private. In November, Catherine and her new boyfriend and future husband, Dennis Everett, met Josh in a parking lot in Seattle to pick up her belongings she had left at their apartment. Josh had written in his journal that he thought that Dennis was a jerk and that he seemed like a possessive freak. Well, that's rich coming from Josh. Susan Cox was born on October 16, 1981 in Alamo Gordo, New Mexico, to Charles and Judy Cox. The family had moved from New Mexico to Alaska before finally settling in Washington State. Susan's family was active in the Mormon church, and when Susan was 19 years old, she was in a religion course with Josh. She met him when he invited people over to his apartment for a dinner party in November of 2000. Josh was living in Tacoma at the time. The two began dating and quickly decided to get married. They married in the Mormon temple in Portland, Oregon in April of 2001. People would later make a comparison of Susan to Catherine, both being young, faithful women who believed in the church's teachings of the importance of marriage and obeying your husband. Some say it seemed as if Josh was shopping when he met Susan. Susan had completed cosmetology school and Josh had a bachelor's degree in business. Josh had trouble maintaining a steady job and Susan made the majority of the money, which Josh controlled, of course. After the wedding, Josh and Susan lived with Josh's father, Steve, in Puyallup. Susan would be friendly to Steve when she was around him, but it seemed that he tried to show her more affection than a father-in-law should. Steve always had a video camera in his hand and made these video journals of everything that was happening. He seemed overly interested in getting Susan in front of the camera as much as possible. In 2003, Steve confessed his love for Susan while he was giving her a ride in his truck. Steve's camera was sitting between the seats of the truck, but it was recording so the audio was captured. It's not great quality. I don't know where it began. It probably began when you were living with me and would come into my office and, you know, you know, let me feel your legs smooth, relaxed, whatever, and, and then it just went from one thing to another. Uh, you know, that experience on the couch, on your couch in Yakima six months ago was just, I, I, I know that, I mean, I'll it was a massage, right? Susan has no words to respond to this proclamation. Steve had worked himself into a fantasy world where he believed that he and Susan were falling in love with each other. One day, Susan had gotten her legs waxed and she showed him how smooth they were and that instantly meant she wanted to have a sexual relationship with him. But there's more. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm interpreting something that I shouldn't be interpreting. Um, you know, it just, if 
for example, when we were sitting on the couch, it just felt like you were very, um, you know, I mean, I was extremely aroused, and I think you were somewhat aroused, at least I thought. I don't know where you're going with this. Susan, I don't... I, I, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I'm wearing. I'm married to your son, and they should just be the daughter-in-law. I know. Which puts me a step beneath your own children. Okay. And that's where I'm comfortable. Okay. okay. I was kind of meaning to talk to you about this, because I realized the last time I came over that my own father, and not to be mean to him about it, because everyone treats everyone differently, but my own father doesn't kiss me. He, you know, as of like six years ago, maybe just started getting in the habit of saying, I love you, and my mom also, my family is not that uh, vocal and physical with showing their emotion, mainly it's just you show that you care about them yeah you know which i think is what most is the first level that most people use you know your co-workers you tease them because you like hanging out with them and i was just thinking about the last time that my own father doesn't kiss me and you you kiss me and i didn't like that okay Susan finally let him know that she was his daughter-in-law and that was the relationship level she was comfortable with she went on to let him know that she was already uncomfortable with the level of affection he showed her. Well, this news destroyed Steve. When his videotapes were recovered later, it would reveal just how broken up he was. But it also revealed just how deep his obsession went. Susan told Josh about Steve's confession, but Steve was able to convince Josh that it was all Susan's fault that he had become smitten with her. Susan was just too sexual and flirty. Right. That situation prompted Josh and Susan to move to West Valley City, Utah, just outside of Salt Lake City. They purchased a house on Sarah Circle in the spring of 2004, and Susan began working for Wells Fargo Investments. Like before, she had the stable income, but Josh controlled all the money. They tried to settle down and start a family. Their first son, Charlie, was born on January 19, 2005. Susan said that Josh enjoyed showing off the baby to people, but in private he had no interest in taking care of Charlie. He wouldn't change diapers or feed him, which makes sense. Josh believed that the wife was supposed to do everything in the house and was just there to serve the man. Braden was born on January 2nd, 2007, and the Powell family was doing well by all outward appearances. They had a nice house, two beautiful sons, and a great relationship. The reality was, Josh and Susan were not getting along. Like Steve had done when he was younger, Josh was now refusing to go to church. Susan was also unhappy with his continual contact with his father, despite his profession of love for her and other sexual advances. His control of the money was another sore spot in the relationship, as he had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on tools, computer equipment, and toys, then had to file bankruptcy. Susan met with a divorce lawyer in 2008, and he suggested that she take a video of all the property in their house to have as evidence in the event that they do divorce and things get ugly. On July 29, 2008, she did just that. Uh, this is me. 
July 29th, 2008. It is 1233 Mountain Time. Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Unfortunately, we know now that that doesn't happen. This is Josh's computer, and there's some type of backup device and speakers. And here's the kind of pimping out stuff he's done to his computer. He built it himself. I think there's like five hard drives, something about doing raids. These are, I think this was like a couple of thousand dollars of like, it says graphic design templates by stock layouts or something friend? like that. Here is a rigid saw. I don't know the differences. I think this is a chop saw. And there is a shop vac. This is all stuff bought in a year or less through Home Depot on my credit. Josh bought a lot of stuff and then he had to bankrupt it. And then he bought a little bit more on my credit. Oh, there's his RC car. It's pretty pimped out. <laughs> you can see that stuff. I think he's got probably a 3,000 worth of supplies in the RC car world. A whole lot more tools. So he brought drill sets. There's a nail gun by Boss Stitch. There's a rigid small drill. Or a Milwaukee drill. A rigid, I think that's a sander of some sort. Here's another saw, or I mean drill. There's another RC car and remote. Here's a laptop, table saw. This is Josh's welding machine. Here is, I think it's a band saw. Another saw, drill or nail gun or whatever. Here's a sander, Nikon digital. And of course, they had the camera that she was using to make that video. Josh had more tools than I've ever owned, and I worked in construction for 20 years before I started doing this. It's not like there were custom cabinets and woodworking details all over their house. Josh was just one of those people who believed his life was better based on the amount of stuff he had. And the way he got that stuff was to put it on credit, most of which was Susan's, and then filed bankruptcy. She even says in the video that he put more stuff on credit after that. But the whole time they were together, Susan was restricted from spending money. She made the money, but Josh spent it all on himself. Susan took this video and kept it in her desk at work. On Monday, December 7, 2009, Debbie Caldwell, the daycare provider for the Powells, became concerned when nobody dropped off Charlie and Braden that morning. Nobody had called to let her know they wouldn't be there, which wasn't like Susan. Debbie tried to call Susan and Josh, but neither of them answered. She went to the Powell house, but didn't see any tire tracks in the snow on the driveway. She knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Debbie called the emergency contact she had on file, which was Josh's sister, Jennifer Graves, and Josh's mother, Terry Powell. They thought it may be carbon monoxide poisoning, so Terry called 911 for a welfare check. Police broke a window near the front door and entered the home. Inside, they found two box fans pointing at the living room couch, and the Powell minivan was not in the garage. They couldn't have left that morning because the snow in the driveway was undisturbed. Susan's purse was on a shelf, and inside was her wallet, keys, driver's license, and credit cards. 
there was no sign of a disturbance. On the afternoon of December 7th, family members finally got a hold of Josh, who said he had taken the boys camping the night before, but Susan didn't go with them. When they asked where she was, he said that he assumed that she was at work. Of course, anytime someone goes missing, investigators look at the spouse first, which makes sense because statistically, that's who's responsible. West Valley City Police Detective Ellis Maxwell spoke with Josh briefly the evening of December 7th, but asked Josh to come into the station the next day so he could answer more questions. We'll be right back. Josh was immediately confused as to why the police wanted to ask him more questions. A brief meeting with a handful of questions was apparently more than enough police work for Josh regarding his missing wife. He was also immediately concerned that the police thought he was a suspect. Now, on, on the way over here, I actually did call my attorneys, and they should, said I should definitely have an attorney. What's that? I, I called my attorneys, which is prepaid legal. Okay. And they said that I should definitely have an attorney. If I didn't read you your Miranda rights, have I? That's what they said. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then, okay? This okay. Is, do you feel like you're under arrest? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even think it was that. I didn't, didn't even sink in yesterday, but I don't know where she's at, and she ain't back yet. Okay. So you don't know if you you don't know if you feel like you're under arrest or not. This is why everybody instantly thought Josh was guilty. Your wife, the mother of your two children, goes missing, and when you go to the police station, your biggest concern is for you. Why do you keep asking me questions? I already told you everything. Why are you bothering me? Because we want to find your wife. Now, are there situations where you should have a lawyer with you when you talk to the police? Sure. Are there situations where you need to protect yourself from police questioning? Sure. But if you're innocent and a loved one goes missing, you probably want to tell the police everything you know in order to help find them. It's usually accepted that your concern for your wife would supersede your desire for self-preservation. The detective explains that he's not under arrest and that it's a missing persons case that was initially a case of a missing family. Okay. This report came from your mom which is obviously very concerned, and that was started by the daycare provider. By the okay. way, she has a key to my house. Okay. The daycare provider has a key, so <clears throat> I don't know why they, why they had to break the window when well, she started it and she had a key. Okay, well, that was not brought to our attention, obviously. Again, his priority is not finding his wife. He's upset that they broke a window. The police who don't know who has a key, who are worried that people are in the house, possibly dying, and want to get in to potentially save them, should call around and try to find a key first in order to save a $200 vinyl window? Right. Josh finally agrees to talk to the detective without a lawyer, but he's totally checked out. His mind is not on his missing wife. So, what brought you guys to Utah? Just, um... I'm oh, sorry, what did you say? What brought you guys to Utah? Um, uh, just getting away. Yeah, just getting away from your creepy father after he professed his love to your wife. Detective Maxwell has him explain what happened on the days leading up to Susan's disappearance. 
Josh explained that Saturday morning he took the boys to Lowe's where they did a building activity and then they went to a church party for breakfast. The detective asked him if he and Susan had any arguments, and Josh said no. Susan worked on Saturday. Her schedule was Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday. She left at about noon to go to work, and their friend Giovanna brought her 10-year-old over where they worked on some home improvement projects together. When Susan got home from work, Giovanna left and Josh and Susan watched The Santa Claus, too. Sunday morning, Susan took the kids to church. Josh told Detective Maxwell that he didn't go to church because he didn't feel like walking, but Susan had complained that Josh had stopped going to church, so this sounds like a lie. At about noon, Josh said that he went to the store. I went to the store mm -hmm. and picked up... After she got home? Some kind of food, I don't really know what. Um, I actually drove her home because I drove up about that time and she was walking with the boys and so and she was only a couple blocks from home but I you know got them in the car mm -hmm. drove them home and, okay um and I went to the store um seems like it might have been Winco okay I can't even remember what I bought okay but it was something to eat um I bought yogurt. There was something I was missing. Anyway, I made an omelet. Um, when I got back, I made some kind of an omelet. What was going on in the house when you got back? What was Susan and the boys doing? Just normal. I mean, the kids were playing, and she was just... I think she was watching TV. Okay. Um, so I made an omelet and some kind of pancakes and... Put cream cheese in them. Damn it, man. This is the 24 hours around when your wife went missing. How can you not remember anything? He's just so lackadaisical about anything surrounding his wife's disappearance. Giovanna came back over on Sunday. Oh, and then she called Giovanna. Um, anyway, Giovanna came over. Mm -hmm. She had some pancakes, too. I guess Susan was feeling tired when she got home from church, so... By that time, she decided to take a nap, maybe three, three or four. Okay. Probably four. Then Giovanna hang, hung out for a while. I was just trying to get the sleds and everything ready and trying to make sure I got all their change of clothes. Didn't really have a plan in mind, so I was trying to prepare for everything, you know. I think she woke up around 6.30. The friend that spent time with both Josh and Susan that weekend was Giovanna Owings. Giovanna would regularly spend time at the Powell's house crocheting with Susan. On Sunday, December 6th, Giovanna came over and helped Susan organize yarn for her crochet projects. Giovanna would later do an interview where she said it was very strange that Josh was cooking. Like I said, Josh was a cooking-is-the-wife's-job kind of guy, and Giovanna said she never had seen him cook before. She also said that she had heard Josh call his dad to get a recipe for pancakes, and then he proceeded to make them one at a time. Not only was it odd for him to be cooking, but he was making one individual pancake at a time. 
Josh put pancakes on the table for the boys and brought plates of pancakes into the living room for Susan and Giovanna. Shortly after, Susan began not feeling well and laid down. Josh suggested it was time for Giovanna to leave because he was going to take the boys out sledding. According to Giovanna, he left at the same time as her. Josh told the detective that he left later and returned home at about 8.30 or 9 p.m. Then he said he used a rug doctor on the couch. Well, she wanted the couch cleaned, so I said the rug doctor would try to do something each week, you know. Um, it's too hard if it's all wet at once, you know, and it dries slow. So we... Um, and we watched a movie. And I think that was probably Santa Claus 3. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we, uh, finished up the movie. I talked to her about, uh, taking the boys to do s'mores and to try out the new generator, you know, mm-hmm. and she went to bed and I finished packing and loaded them up. Apparently, Josh said that they regularly used the rug doctor on the couch because their sons get it dirty. This explains why the couch was cleaned and why there were box fans pointing at it when the police went into his house the following day. Then he told Susan that he was taking Charlie and Brayden camping at about midnight in December. And somehow Susan has no problem with this. She doesn't remind Josh that he has work in the morning. She doesn't show any concern that it's freezing cold outside. The detective has the same questions. He asks him to give him more details about the conversation. You know, I told her that I wanted to, and she just said, Well, you have a heater. You can't take the boys out in the cold without a heater. I'm like, Yep, I got my generator. Mm-hmm. That was it? That's basically, I mean, it wasn't a long conversation. She didn't uh, inquire as to when you'd be back, when you're going, where well, you were going. Her, I told her I'd be back, so I'll just come <clears> back tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. And then with the snowfall, it yeah, I got a little later in the morning mm-hmm. than I was planning. Plus, the boys were loving it, you know. Um, we kept seeing deer and sheep. Mm-hmm. All these stuff, all these things that they just they just eat it up, you know. Right. Did you make arrangements? Uh, did you guys uh, talk about arrangements for her getting to work? I was thinking it was going to be Sunday, and I didn't even think about work. And her? I guess it didn't cross her mind at the time. Okay. His explanation of why he went out on Sunday night when he and Susan both had work in the morning was that he had gotten his days mixed up and he thought it was Saturday night. 
Now, I can be forgetful, and I've definitely gotten days mixed up, and maybe Susan just didn't think about what day it was when Josh talked to her about camping. So, this explanation is plausible, but as his story progresses, it causes problems. Josh explained that he packed three pairs of clothes for the boys, but none for himself. He packed heaters, a humidifier, his new generator, some wood, fire extinguishers, lighters, camping gear, gas, tarps, and he said the sleds were already in the van. When he was asked what type of camping gear, he said he didn't know. He explained that it was a box with s'more sticks, extension cords, flashlights, and just a bunch of stuff that is useful for camping, but he only uses the stuff right on top and isn't sure about what else is in the box. He also packed yogurt, cheese, hot dogs, marshmallows, and graham crackers. He described going on I-80 to Tooele. From there, he headed south and went on to the historic Pony Expressway, which is about an hour south of Salt Lake City, where he pulled off onto a trail. He told the detective that he already had a full tank of gas, so he didn't need to fill up and didn't stop anywhere else. He wasn't sure how far down the Pony Express he went. He says he just drives until he sees somewhere that looks good. According to Josh, he just does stuff throughout the day, throughout his life really, and doesn't pay any attention to what he's doing. He doesn't pay attention to what he does during the day. He doesn't pay attention to what day of the week it is. He doesn't pay attention to where he's driving. He just drifts aimlessly through life, not remembering any details about what he's done. Well, I just stopped. Set up the generator, just on a tarp. and um, Plug in the heaters. Got some sleep. Just right there on the trail? Mm-hmm. Okay. What are, do you keep mentioning these heaters? What, what kind of heaters? Just a heater. Just a the, space heater. A space heater you plug in? Yeah. And you just plug it into the generator and yeah. left it in your car? Well, the generator out, but the car, yeah, and the, yeah, the heater's inside. Hmm. You can't run a car. With the engine. You can't sleep in a car with the engine running. Yeah. Although I've done it a few times. Okay. But usually if you fall asleep with it running, you're taking a gamble. Like, you know, with the generator, it's sitting off to the side, and so it's not really that close. What happened to crying, sniffling Josh? He's chatty Kathy now, all smiles and friendly banter. Josh explained that they slept inside the van, with his new generator set up outside powering some space heaters in the van. They woke up at dawn, had a little campfire to make s'mores, then drove all over the trails on the Pony Expressway. Coming back, he said he drove north until he saw a sign for Lehigh, so he went that way. I'm not quite sure where he was, but there only seems to be one highway between the Pony Express and Lehigh. He said he stopped at a self-serve car wash in Lehigh because the trails on the Pony Expressway get the car so dirty. Of course, he doesn't remember the name of the car wash, what road it was on, how many bays it had, or anything around it, because he's Josh. He just doesn't pay attention to anything in life. After that, he stopped for lunch at McDonald's. After lunch, he tried to call Susan to let her know he was coming back. I actually tried to call Susan to see, well, just to let her know that I was back. I was coming back. What time was that? I just, I can't even remember. After lunch? Yeah, I mean, it was probably two or three. 
And then I was just driving with the boys, telling them, you know, just trying to convince them that it's okay to go home. Mm-hmm. We don't need to pack it all into one day, you know? Right. Sometime later, Giovanna called and told me that there was a, that people were worried about us. Mm-hmm. That there was people at our house. What time did she call, do you think? I, I don't even remember. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure it's on the bill. Okay. What did that uh, conversation consist of? Um, just real short. I mean, she just said that there's a bunch of people worried about us. Mm-hmm. There's people at our house. And she's like, where's Susan? And I was like, well, she's at work. Mm-hmm. This is where Josh's story about getting the days mixed up starts to fall apart for me. He left at about midnight on what he said he believed was Saturday going into Sunday. But when he talks to Giovanna the following morning, he assumes Susan was at work. We'll be right back. By this time, police had found Susan's phone in the Powell's minivan. I want to ask you about the cell phone, okay? And we kind of chit-chatted about that last night. But I really never got a clear answer from you as to why you had to... I already told you that I was asking for a phone number. Okay. She said, go get it yourself. Okay. All right. And then I just eventually put things in my pockets, you know. And and once I realized it was there, I wasn't home, so. Okay. Well, like I said. I instinctively just put it in the tray, but I don't even think about it. I mean, when I'm I'm camping or out there where I'm not going to need it, I'll take out everything from my pockets just so it isn't going to fall. Okay. Get lost, you know. Um, I want to. I want to talk. I mean, that includes wallets. Okay. All right. Everything. Okay. It was inside the center console, and Josh had explained that he had asked Susan for a phone number, and she had told him to just get it off of her phone. He did, and then he just stuck her phone in his pocket, and it was still there when he left to go camping. He then told authorities that he always sticks everything in his pockets into the center console when he's camping his phone, his wallet, etc. So he would have known he had Susan's phone that night when he emptied his pockets, and then he would have likely seen it again the following day when he got his stuff out of the center console. I mean, it was pink, so it's hard to miss. So why did he call Susan's cell phone to let her know he was on his way back? He knew he had her phone. Then, when she didn't answer, naturally because her phone was with him, he left her a message apologizing about messing up the days. He said in the message that he had mixed up the days and thought he had left on Saturday night. So he knew it was Monday and assumed that Susan was at work. But how did she get there? The Powells only had one vehicle, and normally Josh dropped Susan off at work on his way to his job. Then he came back to pick her up at the end of the day. Maybe she got a ride from someone, but nobody asked. Josh never questioned how Susan got to work, and the detective never asked Josh either. It's very frustrating. There's this massive question at the root of Josh's story, and nobody asks him about it. He said he then drove to Susan's work to pick her up at the time he normally did, but she never came out. Eventually, someone from her office told Josh that she had never shown up for work that day. That's when he called his sister, Jennifer, to talk to her about what to do. The other detail that immediately made Josh look guilty was his lack of urgency when it came to Susan's disappearance. He just didn't seem to be concerned that she was missing. Tell me what happens after you disconnect the phone with Jennifer. 
Um, just started heading home. Mm -hmm. um, was trying to find some food for the boys. Mm -hmm. Trying to convince them to both eat the same, or uh, you know, be willing to eat the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, the two-year-old is trying to assert his independence, so he likes to be disagreeable. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, sometimes I indulge him, sometimes I don't, you know how it goes. Right. Uh, I finally bought some pizza. And then that's when you came to the house. And that's when you and I met, right? Yeah, and in fact, was it, I don't know, was it you that called me? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what did you do after you found out that your wife had never shown up to work and she was actually missing? Oh, I drove around for an hour trying to decide what to get the kids for dinner. You know, even in the interview with Detective Maxwell, he shows no urgency in finding Susan. Well, if you don't want to talk, then what? Then I guess you can leave. Okay. I mean, you could leave anytime anyways. I, yeah. I mean, let me think about it for... Couple days and your wife is missing Josh. Yeah, but I've already. And you want to think answered. about it for a couple of days? I've already answered everything. I told you I would answer everything. I don't understand why. The detective asked him if he's willing to talk to them more in detail, and he said he wanted a lawyer. Detective Maxwell is trying to get him to continue the interview now because, well, there's a missing person they need to find. Josh says he wants to think about it for a few days. His wife has been missing for less than 24 hours, and he wants to spend the next few days thinking about whether or not he wants to talk to the police. He's not interested in finding her. After buying pizza for his sons, Josh finally went home where police and family members were waiting to talk to him. He had a brief conversation with Detective Maxwell, which he apparently thought was more than enough assistance to help find his missing wife, and is shocked when they want to ask him more questions the following day. And here we are. The detective asks him who she hangs out with and where she frequents, but Josh can't come up with anywhere that the police should look for Susan besides the beauty supply store. Yeah, she's just been hanging out at the beauty supply store all morning instead of going to work. That seems reasonable. Detective Maxwell also asks if Susan has been depressed. How about suicide, depression? Was she, did she, was she ever suicidal or depressed? She was suicidal. She was? Yeah. When's that? Tell well, me everything about that. I thought that was over. Okay, tell me everything about that. She was just sad, I guess. I mean... I what just, was she I sad just, about? Well, I, I was always... Um, I don't know. I mean, I do a lot, you know? But I don't always do everything that she wants and you know for a while we were not affectionate you know mm -hmm. I guess that was depressing and I, I don't know if maybe she was upset about work or something but I don't know at all so your wife said that she was suicidal and you think it was because you weren't that affectionate and maybe something at work you really didn't talk about it and you thought she magically got over it Man, Josh, you seem like a grade-A shitty husband. 
No wonder you had to preface your thoughts on your wife being suicidal by proclaiming that you did a lot. The detective asks if he can go into more details about his conversation with his wife being suicidal. But I don't think she's ever been diagnosed with anything. And like I say, it's not really... never been really a huge problem, you know? It's never been a big problem. Why would you say that she's been suicidal in the past then? Well, I mean, she told me. What did she tell you? Basically what I told you, that she was just depressed, you know? Mainly about, I mean, I... You know, just the affection issue and... Um... I think she mentioned a few things about work, but I don't remember. I don't remember what, you know. Um, and some friends, but I don't remember any details on that. Or that she wasn't hanging out with friends enough or something. Yeah, my wife told me she was suicidal, and she told me the reasons, but I don't remember. What, is a guy expected to pay attention when his wife tells him she's suicidal? I already do so much around here. Now I gotta listen to my wife's problems? Jesus. And Josh is shocked that everyone, and I mean everyone, the public, their friends, the police, even Josh's own sister, believes he's guilty. Man, I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because you don't seem to give a rat's ass about your wife. He also adds this little gem. But that's where I say her mother is crazy. And I've been trying to convince her that you got to get some shrink to pound your mother out of you. <laughs> but she doesn't see it that way. She, she gets really mad when I say anything about her mother. <laughs> yeah, joking about my missing wife while I tell you about how she's suicidal. That's hilarious. While Josh was being interviewed, other detectives were talking to Charlie and Brayden. Braden was only two years old, so he didn't really talk, but Charlie told the police some information that didn't look good for Josh. Charlie told the detectives that he went camping with Dad, Braden, and Mommy, but Mommy didn't come home. I just spoke with some of our other detectives, um, and you're going to have to wait here with us. You're not going to go anywhere. Um, one of our detectives just uh, interviewed your children. And uh, your children are telling our detectives that uh, mom went with you guys last night and that she didn't come back. She did not go with us. Okay. Well, with that, just getting that information, you're not going to go anywhere. I'm not going to let you leave. I'm going to detain you. You sit right here. If you want a lawyer and you want to talk or you want to change your mind and talk or take a CBSA test, um, then we can do those things, but... <clears throat> now with that in mind, they know that she didn't go with us. Do your kids lie? Sometimes they do. I mean, if they said that she was with us, they know that's not true. So if they and said... if they said that she was with us, then... Then I guess what? that would put her out in the out the at Pony Express. Okay, and that's my concern. That's our concern. 
it is cold outside. And if there's no one can help her, we can help her right now if you help us out. No, she was not with us. I didn't leave her at the Pony Express. I didn't just take her out and drop her off or even do anything. When Detective Maxwell received that information, he told Josh that he was being detained and that he wouldn't be able to go to his house or have his car or cell phone back. He was getting a search warrant for all three of them. When police searched the Powell home, they found bloodstained patterns on the sofa, carpet, and floor. DNA would later come back matching Susan. They found a life insurance policy on Susan for a million dollars. When they searched Susan's office at her work, they found the video she had made documenting all of the property in their house. They also discovered that Susan had a safe deposit box at the bank where she worked. Inside was a handwritten will where she wrote about how bad their marriage had been, she described the life insurance policy that Josh had taken out on her, and she wrote that she would never leave her boys. She also wrote, quote, If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. End quote. For some reason, the police let Josh go. They shouldn't have. They had more than enough circumstantial evidence to hold him while they continued their investigation. Detective Maxwell wanted to arrest him, but apparently the district attorney wanted Susan to be missing for at least 12 months before they arrested him. Brilliant. What a fabulous idea. After Josh's interview, the police observed him carrying out some bizarre behavior. He liquidated Susan's retirement account. He called the daycare provider and told her that Charlie and Braden wouldn't be coming back. He also called and canceled all of Susan's chiropractor appointments. He shoved bags and bags of garbage into the trash, and he pulled his van out of the driveway and spent the day thoroughly cleaning the interior. When the Powell minivan was finally brought into the police station and searched, Josh went to the Salt Lake City Airport and rented a Ford Focus. He put 807 miles on it over the next 18 hours and then returned the car. It's believed that Josh may have gone out and moved Susan's body, or that he even met a family member and had the body taken even further away. When Josh returned from his trip in the rental car, he picked up his van and continued moving on with his life. He was scheduled to talk to authorities again on December 5th, for which he had retained a lawyer, but never showed up to the meeting. He spoke to the police the following day and was not cooperative. By December 20th, Josh had taken Charlie and Braden to Puyallup for the holidays, but on January 8th, he returned to West Valley City with his brother, Michael, and the two packed up his house and Josh moved permanently to Puyallup, where he lived with his father, Stephen. It was exactly one month since his wife had gone missing, and Josh Powell was not interested in cooperating with police or even living in the same state where he and Susan resided. He had no interest in finding her. He knew he never would because he knew she was dead. Even though the police should have been more willing to arrest Josh for being involved in his wife's disappearance, they just let him run away. They didn't stop their investigation, but they also didn't stop him. While police were still building a case against Josh Powell, Josh and his family were working on plans of their own, grand plans that they believed would get the heat off of Josh. Part 2 of the Josh Powell case will be available this Thursday, so hit subscribe and follow the show so you don't miss out. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.
or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. In the mid-1800s, a young Jack Gallagher left Limerick for a new life in America. Over 200 years later, the Gallagher name is now back, helping you face the future with confidence. Gallagher is Ireland's new name in motor, business and home insurance and financial planning. Call Gallagher today on 0818-222-400 for all your insurance needs. Arthur J. Gallagher, Insurance Brokers Ireland Limited, trading as Gallagher and Polsky Quote, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.